If you just raise your hand. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Verses 8 to 11 this morning. As you're turning there, remember in verse 11 of chapter 1, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in the book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And that's really what John had done. And uh, we know that there's also four ways to interpret or understand, rather, the messages given to these seven churches. We know, number one, historically, you can look at them, seven original churches and seven, uh, you know, real cities in Asia given in, uh, to us in the order of the ancient Roman postal route. We know also we can look at them practically. They teach us a lot about church life. Almost every problem, difficulty, and challenging, challenges facing the church are addressed in these seven letters. We know that we can look at them personally in our own lives. They, they apply to us individually as believers, uh, you know, because that's why each one of the letters ends with, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, number four, we can look at this prophetically, seven being the number for completeness, we have a picture of the complete church age. Each church represents a certain stage in, in church history, starting with Ephesus, you know, the early church, the first church, up until the, the death of the Apostle John in 99 AD. Then came the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church that we're going to look at this morning, uh, from the second century to the fourth century. Then five more church ages that we'll look through all the way through church history to this present day. Well, we come now to uh, the second letter, which really is just a postcard. Really just four short verses uh, written to the church of Smyrna, or better known as the Suffering Church. It's thought that perhaps as much as 6 million Christians were martyred for their faith during uh, this time the Roman government sought to wipe out Christianity. And so this letter is to the Smyrna church. Jesus is encouraging them to be faithful unto death and he'll give them the crown of life. So let's read now verses 8 through 11 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who is dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place, Lord, where your spirit is speaking to us, your church. And so we pray, Father, that we would have open ears to hear all that you have for us this morning. We pray, Father, that, Lord, we not just only gain information, but application in our lives today, that we would live victoriously, Lord, living in your power and your strength. We thank you for this time. Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us this service or will join us next service that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. They don't know what it means to have their sin forgiven, to be born again. Would you especially touch them this morning, we pray. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in 1976, I was a senior in high school, and uh, Stevie Wonder had a hit song called Sir Duke. And I, I liked all of his songs, and, but it really captured what music was all about. 
The first verse began, music is a world within itself with a language we all understand, with an equal opportunity for all to sing, dance, and clap their hands. Then he goes on. Just because the record has a groove, don't make it in the groove. You know, the point being is, you know, Stevie Wonder really called it like it was. Music is a language we all understand. I mean, it can be universal. It can speak without words. The song can bring about so much emotional response. Go, oh, yeah, it just touches you. Music can move us. Yet there's another language that moves us as well. And it's not one we like so much. It's the language of pain. Now, pain is a language we all understand. It certainly speaks loud and clear when it comes. C.S. Lewis said, uh, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But God shouts to us in our pain. He also wrote, suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There's a Jews who used to also have a saying, a proverb, not a, a biblical one. It's not found in the Bible. But they used to say, not to have pain is not to have been human. But it was Wesley, not Charles, but the dreaded pirate Roberts Wesley from Princess Bride that said to Buttercup, life is pain, Highness, and anyone who says differently is selling something. Even Aristotle said we cannot learn without pain. Now, when we hear that, we think, oh, there's got to be some way to learn without pain. You know, there's got to be a better way to learn. And yet pain is a cruel teacher. Think of the lessons you've learned from pain. If you stay too long in the sun, you're going to get burned. Oh, no, I'll be okay. And you end up a lobster, you know. Or on the side of the Starbucks cup, caution, contents may be hot. And you take that big drink and burn all the taste buds off of your tongue. The point is, you usually only have to learn that lesson one time because of the pain. You've learned the lesson. In the same way, God allows us to go through times of suffering, times of pain, because he knows that's the only way we're going to learn. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, I owe more to the fire and the hammer and the file than anything else in my Lord's workshop. I sometimes question whether I have ever learned anything except through the rod. When my schoolroom is darkened, I see the most. Of course, we've all met people, amazing people, that every day are in pain and who, because of their suffering, have a deep character and a deep love for God that, that you can only get through pain. But we also, uh, you know, we all at some point in life experience pain, some more than others. And, and when we suffer, we have a choice. You, no matter what the source of pain, where it comes from, be it you're suffering physically or you're suffering emotionally, we all have a choice when it comes to suffering. You can either become a bitter person or you can become a better person for it. You know, we, we can uh, allow pain to be a chisel to shape us or a stone to crush us. And I think we've met both kinds of people in our lives, haven't we? Those people who are more, you know, refined by suffering and others who are just angry and bitter and, and never release it. It's bitter or better. You know, it's been said, pain is inevitable, misery is optional. Well, now we come to the church of Smyrna. Here's Jesus writing to a group of people in pain, but there's pain, their pain comes from suffering persecution. It's not your ordinary run-of-the-mill kind of suffering. And so while we can relate to the condition of suffering, the reason for their suffering, we may kind of part company here. That's because of the persecution of their faith for Jesus Christ. But wherever that pain comes from, God has something to teach all of us, something to learn, to learn something from. And so he begins, look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right. Now remember that word angel can also be translated messenger. It could also mean pastor. 
So to the pastor of the church of Smyrna, right. Now, who was the pastor of the church of Smyrna? Well, we know that it was Polycarp. Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. And I think what a blessing that must have been for John, uh, really to be a disciple of John, because John wrote this in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which we have, that which was from the beginning we have heard, which we have seen with our, our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. In other words, John was able to pass on firsthand to that next generation what he saw, what he heard, the words of Jesus. Hey, this is real. And he shared that with Polycarp. So in turn, this letter that Jesus gives to John is also going to Polycarp. Now, what's also interesting about Smyrna is in comparison to Ephesus, Smyrna is still standing. I bring that up because last time together we talked about the church of Ephesus. And we talked about them losing their first love. If they didn't return to their first love, that lampstand would be removed. And it happened. The church in Ephesus no longer exists. But today, what was called Smyrna is now called by its Turkish name, Izmir. And it's now the chief and largest city in Turkey. And that city today has a population of over 200,000 people. And about one-third of the population are professing Christians. Something else about Smyrna, it was known in the ancient world for its beauty. It sat on this beautiful natural harbor, you know, and it was a major route to, to Persia. The city was filled with all sorts of shrines with, with a main road running through it called the, the, the Golden Street. It ran from the port of Ephesus all the way, all the way up to, uh, through the town to, it ended up at the Acropolis. And it was called the Golden Street because of all the temples along the way. I mean, they had a temple for, for every, every, you know, false god. They had a temple to Tiberius, to, to Zeus, to Diana, to Aphrodite, to, to Apollo. In fact, historians tell us that at the time there was a contest held among the occupied territories of Rome as to who would have the privilege of building a special shrine to Caesar himself. And guess what city won the contest? Smyrna. So, so they were known for their worship of the emperor where, you, you know, they effectively you'd have to say Caesar was Lord. Needless to say, that created a problem with the Christians because they would not say Caesar's Lord. Instead, they would say Jesus is Lord. And so it's a tough place to be a Christian. In fact, there was a price to pay. Jesus even mentions it in verse 9. He says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty. Poverty. They're experiencing poverty in Smyrna because a lot of the believers, they were losing business. You know, someone would find out that you were a believer and then they would take their business elsewhere. So there was a poverty as a result of that. And indeed, we know that, uh, again, the believers of Smyrna suffered greatly, as did many of the Christians in, in Rome. Thousands upon thousands of believers, you know, lost their lives, were put to death simply because they would not say Caesar is Lord. In fact, the Roman historian named Tacitus verifies this in his writings when he talks about how these early Christians, he says, besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement, he writes that he would, they would cover these Christians with wild beast skins and then unleash wild dogs on them to tear them apart. He says many of them were crucified while others were tied to stakes and then set on fire and used to illuminate Nero's garden as he would ride his chariot through the garden squealing with delight despite the agonies of his victims. I mean, imagine how horrible that was. Nero really began to part the persecution against the church, but the persecution actually intensified under Diocletian. He was so confident that he successfully eradicated the Christians that he actually had a coin struck that said, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the Roman gods is restored. Needless to say, you know, uh, it didn't work out so well for Rome. 
You know, Rome, there's just ruins left. And, and the church, you know, is still alive and well. Because Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. So instead of destroying the church, these Roman emperors actually strengthened the church. And here's what is interesting. Smyrna was named after the chief product of that city. And the chief product that was Smyrna actually means myrrh. And myrrh was that embalming spice used in biblical times. And what's interesting about that spice, about myrrh, is that it has a very sweet-smelling uh, fragrance, but it must be crushed in order to give that fragrance out. I mean, what an appropriate name for a church that it was being crushed through persecution, persecution as many were martyred for their faith. But the beauty of it was, as their lives were being crushed, the more of the fragrance of Christ was given off from their lives. In fact, it was so strong that many of the, the persecutors actually gave their lives to the Lord as a result of watching these Christians, you know, uh, be put to death. As Tertullian, the father of Latin Christianity, once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And here's an interesting fact. We often hear of Christians today and how they're being, you know, persecuted, they're being put to death for their faith because of the Muslim extremist and, and Islamist extremism. And, and it's happening at an alarming rate. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters. But what we, what we don't hear, and what's amazing to me, is how many Muslims are coming to faith in Christ as a result of seeing this persecution taking place. According to an article from Christianity Today, they say, we are living in the midst of the greatest turning of Muslims to Christ in history. Muslims who convert to Christianity can face the death penalty and many experience intense persecutions. So converts are often underground, making it impossible to know exactly how many new believers there are. But estimates currently range between two and seven million. So when persecution seems to be the strongest, when the church is being crushed, the sweet fragrance of Christ is strongest as God's spirit moves in the lives of these people. Now let me say this, you know, we read it in the headlines almost every day that persecution is not stopped. It's going to continue. And it's going on. And Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why are we persecuted? Because righteousness is confrontational. In fact, we're told in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, oftentimes, you don't even need to say a word. Just your very presence and the fact that they know that you're a Christian, you know, gets on the radar screens of other people. And you're just living the Lord and you're just, you know, smile on your face, praising the Lord. Persecution's going to come. It's going to come. Why are you smiling all the time? What's wrong with you? You know, let me add one more thing. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. I didn't say blessed are you when you're persecuted for being obnoxious. He didn't say blessed are you when you're persecuted for being self-righteous. He didn't say blessed are you when you're persecuted for being holier than now. And I think of that Westboro Baptist Church, which really is just an independent cult. You know, they pick at the, the funerals and the, 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 they hold signs that say God hates and you fill in the blank. And, and when they get pushed back, oh, we're just being persecuted for righteousness sake. No, you're being persecuted because you're wrong. And because you're weird. I mean, that's it. You're ignorant of God's word and God's love and of God's grace. You know, I think of those sometimes we encounter downtown at the GO team. You know, they get up on their podium, the little, little soapbox, and they have the megaphone, and they're shouting at people and telling them they're going to go to hell. And, and, and you know, which 
Probably it's true they are going to hell, but, but, but that's not the way to reach people. The bottom line is, is people are just weird and they bring on the persecution themselves. But then you have other, you know, other believers, and I would, you know, I like to call them Debbie Downer believers, you know? Because what they always have to say, it's always a bummer, it's always negative towards non-believers. The non-believers say, oh man, what a beautiful day. And Debbie Downer believers says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. You know, uh, you know, the world passes away and the lust of praise God. You know, you, you know, you're just weird, okay? You're weird. Now, I'm not saying, you know, compromise. I'm just saying, be nice. I'm not saying don't stand your ground. I'm not saying don't speak of what is true. I'm just saying, be nice. Remember how you were before you gave your life to Christ. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. What was Jesus known for? He was known as a friend of sinners. And that was not meant as a compliment, but simply because Jesus would hang out with sinners. Never compromising, far from it, but Jesus loved them and they knew that Jesus loved them and that's how we need to be. We need to love people and if we're persecuted for it, let it be for the right reasons. Now, back to this church in Smyrna. Here they are. They're going through a time of great difficulty, persecution and hardship. So Jesus writes them this postcard with some encouraging words for them. And maybe you're going through a time of pain and suffering and, 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 and discouragement right now. Maybe not persecution per se, but a difficult time. These words from Jesus are exactly what we need to be reminded of, especially during difficult days of pain and suffering. Five things, if you're taking notes in these four verses. Uh, number one, when going through times of persecution and suffering, we need to remember that, number one, Jesus is eternal. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now that phrase, first and last, it's actually borrowed from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. A clear proclamation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now remember, Jesus identifies Himself to each church according to their need. This one, to this one, He reveals Himself as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now this is awesome because they needed to hear this. The phrase who was dead literally means who became dead. To these people who are about to become, you know, face tremendous suffering, rather tremendous persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ, even death, he reveals himself that, that he was the one who first became dead. And we see Jesus through the ultimate suffering of being separated from God for us. He became dead so we could become alive to God by believing in him. He took our punishment so that we can have this living relationship with him. But listen, the, these Christians in Smyrna, they were going to suffer and they were going to die horrible deaths. And there might have been a time where they would have asked, is it worth it? Why? What, why should I die? And they could have thought of a million and one reasons how they could still follow Jesus and somehow rationalize, uh, rationalize away their denial of him. Yet Jesus reminds them of how much he loved them, how he became dead for them. But he goes on, the one who became dead and came to life. Say so he's now alive. He was dead, but now he is alive forever. He is eternal. You see, though they were going to die, Jesus didn't tell him they don't have to fear those that kill the body because he's already conquered the grave. Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty eight, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean the, the most fearful thing about death is what? What's going to happen after death? Yet Jesus experienced death. And lived again to tell about it. 
And he's the only one that can actually you know, speak authoritatively to the issues of what happens after we die. Because he knows. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. He said in John fourteen nineteen, because I live, you will live also. See, by reminding them of his triumph over death, Jesus is giving them the courage and the strength for them to face the hour when they would be facing death. Why? Because he is the one who knows. He knows about it. In fact, that's point number two. When we go through times of persecution or suffering, we need to remember that Jesus knows about our suffering. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're synagogue of Satan. He says, I know your tribulation. That word for tribulation comes from the word pressure. It's a classical Greek word. It was used to describe a man slowly being crushed to death by an ever-increasing pressure of a heavy boulder. Man, isn't that how suffering is from time to time? It seems like this, this never-ending pressure is coming down upon you and you can't turn it on or, or off. It usually goes on and on. It seems to last beyond our ability to cope with it. We can't make it go away even though we want it to go away. And that's why Jesus is saying, I know about your suffering. I know about your tribulation. I know that it feels relentless and, it, and it's bearing down on you and it's not going to go away. I know, though, that, that, that you have been called upon to bear something that seems to last forever. Jesus, I want you to know, I know what you're going through. He goes on to say, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Another word for blasphemy could be slander. And that's what was happening to the church in Smyrna. The Jew, the non-Christian Jews there, I mean, they were a gigantic problem. They wanted to be on the good side of Rome, and so they were slandering, they were you know, picking on the Christians and, and, and you know, slandering the Christians back to the Romans, and, and it would get back to them, and that's where the persecution would come in. See, they professed faith in God. They really were instruments of the devil. And so Jesus says, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to suffer slander and ridicule. It's interesting that word for I know that Jesus uses doesn't mean he knows by watching, which he does, uh, but the word implies he knows because he has passed through the same thing himself. He knows through experience. Jesus is saying, I know what it's like. I've been there. You know, Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, if someone in the church decided to reach down under their seat and pick up a bag of rocks and start heaving them at me or one another, you know, and afterwards, you know, we end up throwing the guy in jail. You know, I don't think I'd really want to go talk to him. I would understand how, I mean, they could do such a thing. Now, if that same person, instead of pulling out a bag of rocks, pulled out a, a caramel and banana concrete from Andy's and started eating it during service, after service, I would say, man, I understand. I know what it's like to want that Andy. Oh, man, I've been there. So, too, I suggest that for Jesus to be the compassionate, faithful high priest that the book of Hebrews tells us he is, the suffering he went through had to be real. Uh, you know, for him to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and understand what we're going through, he had to be where we've been. That's why Jesus could say, I know. I know what you're going through. I've been there. I've experienced the slander, the persecution, the pain, the rejection, and I made it through. So can you. You know, when you're hurting in a bad way, it's just great to talk to someone else who's been there. You know, you talk to someone who hasn't been there and they try to relate, but they really can't. 
But to talk to someone who's been there, and man, man, I know what you're going through. It's not even so much that what they had to say encourages you, but, but just to know that, that you can relate to what they're going through, and they're still standing, and they made, they made it through a lie, they have endured it. Man, that, that brings, you know, just hope. It, it brings, you know, uh, just relief, it comforts us. In fact, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So we can go with people who are going through the same things. Man, I I know what it's like to go through that. Man, I've been there for you. I'm praying for, for you. Here's my point. Maybe as you go through your hardship right now, you say, God... You have to get me out of this thing. You gotta, you know, get me out of this situation. Lord, say, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm eternal. I'm in control. There's a beginning. There's a middle. There's an end. And I know what's going on. You can trust me. That brings us to point number three. Jesus has a plan. Look at verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Now, we know there were ten waves of persecution that hit the early church, and some commentators believe that this is what Christ was alluding to when he says you will have tribulation ten days. I don't know if that's the case or not. I know they were persecuted. But Jesus' point is, is there is a time limit on it. And he says the same thing to you and I. I'm in control. I'm with you. I'm sovereign. Now You're going to be tested, but I have a plan. You know, why do these bad things happen to us? I don't know. Some, sometimes they're brought about by the devil, tempting us to sin, tempting us to go down a path we shouldn't go on, and we reap the repercussions of it because we've gone down that path. Other times it's just Satan, you know, wreaking havoc in our lives just because he hates God, and because he hates God, he hates you and I. But know this, whatever Satan proposes, whatever he throws at us, if it happens in our lives, God has permitted it. I think of the story of Job. He's a perfect example of that. You know, the devil comes and says, Hey, God, let me have my way with Job. You're protecting him. You know, let me have my way with him. You know, we'll see what he's made of. And God could have said, No, you back off. You, you can't touch him. Instead, God allowed it. And those horrible afflictions came against God's servant. But the Lord allowed it. He had a purpose in it. God will allow certain things in your life. The devil means it to destroy you. But God will allow it to refine you. As we know, Romans 8, 28, you know, that God uses all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those that are called according to His purpose. So here's what the Lord is saying. Guys, remember, I'm eternal. I've always been and always will be. And whatever is happening to you is temporary because of those you have believed in me are eternal as well. You are immortal. You'll spend time with me in eternal in my presence. So know this, that it won't last forever. Whatever your suffering is, I know about it. And it's all a part of the bigger plan. That's why Paul could write in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. It's amazing that Paul could say something like that. Our present troubles are small. This was the guy that was stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, thrown out in the open sea, cast into dungeons, and he says, no problem. They're small. They're working in us. Far glorious days. I wish I had Paul's eyesight. Man, to see whatever it is that we endure presently I mean, compared to the weight of God's glory just doesn't compare. Number four, Jesus has a promise. Look at verse 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Here Jesus reminds them that he's going to reward their faithfulness. 
Now, Smyrna, they had, you know, an arena there with athletic events took place. So they all knew about running races. They knew about winning crowns. And when they talk about crowns, you know, don't think of this big old crown like, you know, Queen of England wears or something like that. It was a crown made of laurel leaves uh, like they would give to the winner in an athletic event. But it was an award. It was something that had significance behind it. So Jesus is saying, be faithful unto death and I'll have the crown of life waiting just for you. Now, there's multiple crowds found in the Bible. The Bible speaks of, of the crowd of rejoicing, which apparently given for those that, uh, that lead other peoples to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Then we know that there's a crown of righteousness, which is promised to those that love the appearing of the Lord. 2 Timothy 4.8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who love his appearing. So there's different crowns that are offered, but here now is a crown of life. And interesting, to the church of Smyrna, he promises that I will give you the crown of life because you have faced suffering, because you've been persecuted. But did you know that same reward is promised to the person who resists temptation and endures personal suffering? Over in James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation and perseveres under trial, for when he has withstood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those that love him. James 1, 12. So here's a quick poll. How many of you have ever been tempted? Okay. You know, you've been tempted to do something evil. Okay. How many of you have never been tempted? Okay, I just wanted to see because not all of you raised your hand when I asked it the first time. Okay, how many of you have given into a temptation to do evil? Everybody. I mean, my hand is up too. Okay, we're all, I'll do that one. How many of you have successfully re- resisted temptation? I mean, blessed is the man or woman that endures temptation and perseveres into trial. For when he has withstood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those that love him. You know, it's hard when temptation comes our way. It's easy to stand here and talk about how evil is. Oh, temptation is bad. Yeah. You know, but what about when you're being tempted? You know what the problem is with temptation? It's tempting. It's tempting. Hence the word temptation. It's alluring. See, I don't believe that the devil is an idiot. I think he's evil, but I think he's also very smart. And he knows how to package his stuff. He knows how to make bad things look good. Remember when Eve was tempted there in the garden, you know, you know, by the way, the Bible never says it was an apple. I prefer to think it's a fig because I love figs. I think they're the best fruit that's ever been made on this earth. But whatever it was, it looked so good. And, you know, probably, I don't know, pulsated with light or something. And the smell was just would fill, you know, you know, for, for huge areas of space. Who knows? But whatever it was, the Bible says that the fruit was pleasant to look upon and desirable to make one wise. And you know the rest of the story. The temptation came and the moment, you know, it was hard to resist. It's not easy. But you take hold of the word of God when it comes. And you quote it to yourself. And you yield to the Holy Spirit in your life. And you say, no, I'm not going to give in to this. It's wrong and it's displeasing to my God. And the devil is saying, well, you idiot, this is the greatest opportunity ever. Go for it. It's no big deal. Come on. One time. Who's going to know? Go for it. No, no, no. And you resist it. And this kind of passes. Because the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you go, oh man, that was a close one. You get that, just that sense of release. Man, hallelujah, I passed the test. But then maybe you see someone else and they're tempted or they fall and you go, man, 
Thank you, Lord, that I didn't give in that way. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he has tried, he will receive a crown of life. There's a reward waiting for you as you resist temptation. You know, and not just for the person that resists temptation, for the person that goes through suffering. Maybe you're suffering today. Maybe you have family problems, marital problems, money problems, children problems, physical problems, a disability, bad news from a doctor. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Whatever it is, you're suffering and it's hard. It doesn't seem fair to you. Listen to what Jesus says to this church of Smyrna and to us as well. We need to be faithful even to the end. God is in control. Why? Because he's eternal. Jesus knows our suffering. He has a plan, has a promise. And finally, number five, Jesus takes away our fear. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Jesus says, as bad as things may get, you don't need to be afraid. Why? Because as believers, you won't be hurt by the second death. So what is the second death that Jesus is talking about here? Basically, it's dying again after you've died once. How's that possible? Well, let me explain. Non-believer dies twice. First, you know, in this life, uh, of, you know, uh, first of their life, uh, this side of eternity on earth is a state of living death, really, kind of like zombies, you know. The Bible says in, in 1 Timothy 5, 6, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. The Bible says before Christ we were dead in our trespasses and our sin. It's a state of deadness. You know, everything we chase after in this world apart from Christ comes up empty, you know. So you die. You die still in your trespasses and sins, but you're going to have to die again. Revelation chapter 20, John writes about what's called the great white throne judgment. It's there we read that everyone will stand before God. And those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. Now, if you're born again on this earth, you'll inherit the kingdom of God. So, born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. Listen to the, to the, to the, to this world, you know, to the non-believer, this world is as good as it's going to get. So if you're not going to believe in Jesus, here's what I would say, enjoy it while you can because this is as good as it gets. But for the believer, this is as bad as it's going to get on this earth. For us, the best is yet to come. Again, a non-believer is going to die twice. You'll have that, that death in life, so to speak, and then that second death where you face judgment. Let me tell you, the second death is far more fearful than the first. And if you don't know Christ this morning, I pray that you'd not leave here without making that commitment to him, that you'd give your life to him this morning. But here's the bottom line when it comes to suffering. Jesus knows what you're going through, and he's the one that can bring comfort to us. Things may get better if you're suffering this morning, or they may stay the same, or they may even get worse. But know this, that Jesus, the first, the last, has been through it, and he will go through it with you, and he'll be there and emerge on the other side with us. So if you're not suffering today, praise God. Enjoy those times, because they do come in ways. You know, most of us are not suffering like the Church of Smyrna did, but let me say this, there are people that are suffering that way. You know, and, and, and it's horrible what's happening to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. So I would ask as we go home, you know, as we take this week, that we would, as a body of Christ, remember those that are, that are being persecuted, that are being held captive for their faith. And about to be put to death. That we, you know, we don't know them by name, but by spirit we know that they suffer. We certainly can pray for them. Finally, if we're going to be persecuted, let's make sure we're persecuted for the right reasons. I want to close with this story. It comes from Paul Harvey's old radio show. It's a true story. I'll read the transcript from the show. It begins, 
Oh, man, oh, man, they wouldn't invite Pastor Joe to the Kansas State Legislature again. They invited Pastor Joe Wright from Wichita Central's Christian Church to deliver the invocation, and he told God on them. And now God knows what they've been up to. No sooner had their guest chaplain concluded his prayer when three representatives on the state legislature were on their feet at the microphone protesting. He can't talk like that about us. Representative Delbert Gross considered the invocation, calling it divisive, sanctimonious, and overbearing. Representative David Haley called it blasphemous and ignorant. Representative Sabrina Standifer echoed her indignation. What in the world did Pastor Joe say in Topeka, Topeka that incited the righteous wrath of these three representatives of Kansas City? I've secured the entire text of this prayer so you can evaluate it yourself. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask for your forgiveness, to seek your direction and your guidance. We know your word says, Woe to those who call evil good, but that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium. We have inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word in the name of moral pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We exploited the poor and called it a lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. Laziness and called it welfare. In the name of choice, we have killed the unborn. In the name of right to life, we've killed the abortionists. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it taxes. We polluted the air with profanity and pornography and we've called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, know our hearts, try us and show any wickedness in us, cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by these people of Kansas and who have been given and been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule. May their decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask it in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Man, when you pray a prayer like that, you can expect not to be applauded. <laughs> not going to applaud you. But your Father in heaven will. May we live what we believe and trust that no matter what we face, we'll never face it alone. I want to close with this. There's a song that I, I saw posted on, on Facebook this week that uh, the Word for Day posted. It's called, uh, He Giveth More Grace by Annie J. Flint. And it goes like this. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength is gone, ere the day is half through, when we have reached the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His grace has no limits. His love has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that Though we go through suffering and pain and trials and tribulation, we don't have to go there alone. You are with us. You lead us. Lord, you have an end to it. And we have a hope. And Lord, we trust in you for that hope. And I pray right now, Lord, for anyone here this morning that's suffering physical pain, emotional pain, whatever it is they're going through suffering. Maybe it's persecution from fellow workers, from, from uh, people that are close to them, family members that don't know you. Father, I pray that you'd fill them with a sense of your presence in your life. That you'd strengthen them, that they would know that you know what they're going through. And nothing goes to, uh, is allowed in their life, but you don't first let it go, go through you. And so we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this time this morning. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.